0: All right, again, if you open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, is where our text is going to come out of this morning. There was a Christmas pageant, as most churches have, and and at First Church, and it was always the highlight of their holidays when the the members of the church gathered together and and really when you have the kids do something in that. And so the the director of that year's pageant, and she had been the director of many years previous to that, she was making a lot of special effort to make sure that everything was going to be perfect for their performance. I know what every director does. They want perfection for the performance. Well, the lines, they were memorized. The costumes were created, and everything was just right for this annual event. But as time went along, the director became more focused on the performance of the pageant rather than on the message of the season. So she began to make demands on the children, which seemed a bit unfair. And one of the ch- only the children with the best behavior were the ones who were allowed to participate this year. It upset many of the parents, and so they took their concern to the minister, and he had a conversation with her, and things exploded. And you kind of understand how that was. And, 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 and it's all of a sudden, the longtime director, she quit. And they're just a few weeks away from this pageant night. Well, with only just a couple weeks until Christmas, the parents, they drew together and this this new pageant, and all the children were invited. It didn't matter whether their behavior was good or bad or indifferent. They all got to participate in this. The parents thought that the King James Version that she had been using was a little outdated and a little more difficult for their children to quote from, so they decided to choose a more modern language, the, the Good News Bible translation in there. Well, on the night of the pageant, all was going really well until the narrator came to the part about Joseph finding out that Mary was with child. It is normally how it goes, but instead he read pregnant. Well, that began to unleash a mass hysteria with the kids listening to that word, and they started laughing and giggling, and everything just began to fall apart until finally you had some that were forgetting lines and others were forgetting to go on stage and all that just kind of just destroyed it. The former director had that look on her face. I I told you so, all right? But then something interesting started to happen. Those unruly boys that she wasn't going to let participate, they were now the shepherds in this new program. And in the middle of all that they got up and they headed over to her. And they asked her if she would have the closing prayer. And they gave her some gifts and a little basket of goodies and thanked her for everything she had done up to that point. And it changed the whole atmosphere of that evening. Matter of fact, Millie Jones who was a little bit hard of hearing, often known to whisper to her husband, you know, in that, in that loud whisper because she can't hear, and everybody then hears her whisper. She just simply said, perfect, just perfect. And it began to snow outside, and things began to change. And I know we all want a perfect Christmas, A Christmas that is kind of suitable for one of those Norman Rockwell paintings, right? You know, it just, you look at it and you go, oh, man, that's the Christmas we want. And it just warms the heart and refreshes the soul. Unfortunately, many people this year will not experience a perfect Christmas. The current culture who has stolen Christmas from a lot of children and parents, They've ruined the perfect Christmas. Some will not have a perfect Christmas because of economic reasons. The bills are too high, the debt is mounting, and they begin to wonder, how am I going to pay for all of this? Others are experiencing some strained relationship within the family, and it does not seem like a happy time of year because people are always arguing about things. For others, this is the first Christmas in which they're going to experience without a loved one because they've passed. Knowing we will not always have the perfect Christmas, still we need to strive to have a right Christmas. You see, I'm dreaming of a right Christmas. And for there to be a right Christmas, there must be a right focus. And that's intentional what we focus on at this time of year. Someone has coined the phrase, let's put Christ back in Christmas. Have you ever heard that? The truth of the matter is, it's been a while since Christ has been the focus of Christmas. We have to be honest about that. I read that in the year 1659, Christmas was canceled in the New England colonies here in America. Matter of fact, it was canceled because... Particularly in Boston, there was too much frivolity and worldliness, and it was not reestablished until until 1681. Twenty-two years without Christmas in America. During that period, those who were caught celebrating Christmas were fined five shillings. The main reason the Puritans and the colonies didn't like Christmas was not just a theological issue that they had, but it was because they saw the people using it as a popular holiday for debauchery. They even nicknamed it Fool's Tide. A little info about Christmas you may not have known. Each year, This is what would take place. The rich landowners would throw open their doors to the poor and they would give them food and drink as an act of charity. Now, the poorest man in the parish was named the Lord of Misrule. And the rich, they would wait upon him at feasts that often descended into body drunkenness. Such decadence never impressed the religious purist of the Puritans. Matter of fact, Hugh Latimer, who was a 16th century uh, clergyman, he said this Men dishonor Christ more in the 12 days of Christmas than in all the 12 months besides. And we think we've got a problem with Christmas? You see, not much really has changed, really, in the last 400 years. It seems that in America we still have the wrong focus when it comes to Christmas. And, and however simple it may sound, and we've heard it said for so many years Jesus is the reason for the season. But I want to ask you a question Is that really true? Is Jesus the reason for the season of Christmas? So I want to take you on a journey today. Let's look at our text in Matthew and we might begin to discover the true focus of Christmas. Matthew chapter 1, begin at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the dream, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. From this passage of Scripture, Matthew tells us the true focus of Christmas. You see, Christmas, it's about salvation. That's that's its primary focus christmas is about salvation to understand christmas you need to you need to not spend all your time looking through the new testament gospels but you need to go all the way back to the book of genesis and there we discover why we need to have christmas it was in the garden of eden that we find perfect harmony it was beautiful it it was cared for it was provided by god for the sustenance of man for life eternal There was no death. There was no sickness. There was no injury. It was perfect. It was a paradise. And they enjoyed their fellowship with their Creator as He walked with them in the cool of the evening. Yet in Genesis 3, harmony, peace, becomes chaos. Sin, which was introduced by Satan into this world in disguise as a serpent. He brings about a change in the relationship between God and His creation. One word defines this change, separation. What took place there as a result of that messed up moment in the Garden of Eden created separation. Moreover, the separation brought about several consequences I want us to look at. First consequences, this Adam and Eve, they began to experience the aging process that would eventually lead to their death. In their perfect state, they didn't know pain, but because of their sin, their bodies began to deteriorate like ours do today. They began to get aches and pains in life. There would be aging, suffering, soft skin would turn wrinkly, eyes would dim, and eventually death would come. Psalm 90, verse 10, now changes an identification of life in this world is no longer limitless. But the psalmist says the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80 Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are gone soon, and we fly away. The second result of sin, not just about man, but all creation. Every aspect of creation would change. You see, in the first two chapters of Genesis, one phrase is used repeatedly as God created this world. He says, it is good. 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 It is very good. Right? And God's creation was good. And God was designing a perfect creation for His servant Adam. And there there were no shortcuts. There was no expense that was not taken care of. And he made a beautiful place. Yet when sin entered in, all of a sudden things changed. Thorns, thistles, and weeds, they now grow next to flowers and and fruit. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, Adam said, And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall not and you shall eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return What happened to the perfect world Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And it still is to this day. We are still having earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, cyclones. Our world is erupting with volcanic eruptions. I mean it's this world is in the throes of pain as if it were itself preparing to birth something new the third result of sin was the relationship of god and man was severed It was was damaged so bad that no longer would God simply come and walk with Adam and enjoy an evening. You see, before sin, they would have this intimate relationship. But after sin, God appeared in many forms, sometimes from a, a burning bush on a mountainside in a very small voice maybe being able to walk with God in the cool of the evening through that garden was lost because of what Adam and Eve had done. The fourth result of sin was one of sacrifice, intentional killing, a death. See, after God had banished Adam and Eve from the garden, he had to replace their fig leaf clothing because that just wasn't going to hold up. And He did that with animal skin. What that meant was that God would then kill one of His creation to clothe and cover Adam and Eve. There was a sacrifice made for them. They were not self-sufficient. And so an innocent animal would have to die to cover their sin. And and thousands of years before Jesus was born, God was giving us a preview of our Savior's sacrifice. Remember what he said there in Matthew 1, verse 21, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name Jesus means a Savior. And he is going to save his people from their sins. And since that first sin in the garden, sacrifice has been necessary to protect man from the wrath of God until Jesus. God even established a special sacrificial system with the people of Israel so that every year their sins would be kind of rolled back so he would not have to deal with them. But there was an animal that was sacrificed as a result, as an atonement for their sin each and every year. Matter of fact, let's go to the book of Hebrews and and understand a little bit more about this sacrifice and why it's so important. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have escaped to be offered since the worshipers have once been cleansed would no longer have any consequences or consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible Did you catch this? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold... I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, our sin that allowed God to show the full extent of his love It's evidenced in this sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Understand, when we say that Jesus is the reason for the season, that's only partly true. You and I are the reason for this season. We're the reason there is a Christmas. We're the reason that Jesus came into this world because we have sinned And He has to redeem us for relationship to be restored. So for Jesus to come into this world in which we celebrate His birth, it's because He wants to bring you back to a relationship that has been severed because of sin. We are the reason there has to be a Christmas. You see, a right focus of Christmas is not a simply just a holiday celebration. Christmas is a reminder that we need salvation. To have a right Christmas, we must also understand that Christmas. Christmas is about God changing locations. All right, Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Max Lucado says we sometimes lose this majesty of Christmas in the mundane. Listen to what he's written. He said, He looks like anything but a king, his face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby. He's absolutely dependent on Mary for his well-being. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager and in the presence of a carpenter. We see the gifts, we enjoy the season, we share with family and friends, and we we feel a little more generous at this time of year. But Lucado reminds us not to lose the majesty of Christmas, that somehow the God who created everything, the Lord of the universe, he allowed his son to become a baby. The one who had unlimited power would now allow his son to become powerless in the form of an infant. The one who was clothed in majesty would now be wrapped in swaddling cloths. The one who who walked the golden streets of heaven would now be born in a stable and walk the dusty and dirty roads of Palestine. The one who had no needs was now totally dependent upon a young mother. There are three words, I think, to describe Jesus on that first Christmas, which helped me to have the right focus of the season. The first one is this, humility. Before the birth of Christ, no royalty would ever show humility. Matter of fact, that would be too human, too common. They liked all the pomp and circumstance. There would be those that would announce their coming. There would be parades, and and there would be just an overflow of, of enjoyment and excitement as they approached a city they had an extravagant announcement and the world was blinded at His first coming. And in meek contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal stable. There were no royal attendants present. There was no place for the baby to lay except in a stone feeding trough that was known as a manger. In fact, this event which divided history in our calendars today we mark the year we have based upon his birth when unnoticed except for a few shepherds who were out in the fields nearby tending to their sheep at night there were some magi some wise men from the East who had been studying up about the coming of a king, but they were still lost as to where and who he was. Why did God choose to come by such humble means? I mean, God was teaching in that first Christmas, regardless of your stature in life, that he wants to have a relationship with you. He didn't come simply for the movers and shakers of the world. He came for the humble, the meek, the lowly, the wealthy, the royals. He came for everybody. He sent his one and only son for me. He sent His one and only Son for you. You have to understand that. It doesn't matter about the rest of the world. If you were the only one who was a sinful person, He still would have come. Second Corinthians 8-9, Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. Not only is humility a word I think describes this first Christmas, but the second word is this, approachable. I mean, can you comprehend what it means to for God to lay in a manger? To be so open, so vulnerable, so approachable for anybody? It wasn't as if He was trying to keep anybody away from Him. The Old Testament, God was anything but approachable. You dare not approach unless you did it on His terms. You see, In the Old Testament, we see that when Moses came upon that burning bush, God commanded him to take off his shoes, his sandals, because they were dirty. And the ground upon which he was standing was holy. And he had to bear himself. Isaiah tells us when he was brought into the throne room of God... He cried out in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Jewish children, they knew the lessons well. Don't touch the Ark of the Covenant or you die. If you go into the Holy of Holies, you may not come out. They knew. God is not just, saddle up to me, buddy, and we're going to have a conversation. He was only approachable on His terms. And we dare not take it any other way. However, on that first Christmas, what could be more approachable than a newborn baby? They're not going to threaten you. They're not going to do anything to you. Have you ever noticed how people react around a new baby? I mean, everything about them changes, doesn't it? I mean, that big, burly man all of a sudden is talking in a wee little voice and he's acting funny. It's just the way it is, right? We, we, We have this dynamic change because they are so approachable. And we get right down in their face. Do you ever get in the big guy's face? (laughs) Maybe not safely, right? But we do. We get down in there and, and, and we get as small as we can because that baby is always approachable. The baby becomes the center of attention. And I wonder what it must have been like for the shepherds on that first Christmas when they arrived at the stable... And they found no sentries guarding the entrance. What? Is there inside? And you can see them stepping in and finding there's no guards in here either. And they could approach this little baby whom they had just been told about by the angels of heaven who lit up the night sky. And now they are there, in the room, and you can imagine these little shepherds getting down on their knees, there at that manger, and making faces. He's approachable in a way that he never was before. See, C.S. Lewis, he said, "Christmas." It's the time when the Son of God became man so that men may become sons of God. For thousands of years it was understood sinful man and a holy God could not exist together. But on that first Christmas morning, God was teaching us through the form of a baby that He was once again approachable. Emmanuel. God with us. The third word I think that helps draw our focus is the word courage. Have you ever notice how much courage was displayed on that first night there? Let's take Mary for instance. She would give birth to the Messiah. The Son of God. And she knows that this is This is His baby conceived in her some miraculous way by the Holy Spirit and for her to say, okay, as you wish. I'll do it, whatever. See, her only explanation here is is that God has done this. And and, and this God who had not spoken to Israel for 400 years, years you talk about silent man this was not a silent night because God broke the sound barrier coming in that night he was now going to communicate in a way he had never communicated before and it had to have been terrifying and yet this young teenage girl man, she had to have courage to say, okay, God, have it your way. Joseph, (laughs) he's going to have to take care of Mary. And not only Mary, he has been given in his hands the care and provision of the Son of God. I don't know about you, but I would be extremely nervous about that. I would be making excuses as to why it ought to be somebody else. Um, But Joseph, he also says, I'll do as you ask. And the only assurance he has is that the angels told him, This is good. And you can do it. But the most courageous person had to be that baby Jesus himself. Listen how Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form not of God, but the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wonder what it must have been like for our Savior to have experienced hunger, pain, rejection, humiliation. Christmas Carol Away in a Manger gives us the idea that that manger was a very safe and stable place for the baby. But in truth, by becoming a baby, He exposed Himself to all the frailties of humanity, including death. So why did Jesus show so much courage in coming like that? Simply put, He loves you. He loves you. And I think He would face a thousand deaths because of His love for you. Courageous, loving. So I'm dreaming of a right Christmas, a Christmas with the right focus, a Christmas where we focus on Jesus, God's only Son, given to us as a ransom for our sins, a Christmas where we focus on the Savior who brings hope in a hopeless world, a Christmas where we worship God and not just the gifts that are under the tree, A Christmas where we focus on a king who demonstrated his humility, his approachableness, and his courage. To me, that's a right Christmas. Christmas can only be right when we are right with God. So this year... Let's begin dreaming of a right Christmas. That the world sees the truth. That the reason for the season is your salvation. Let's pray.